Well, 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 good morning, Story family. Love you guys. I'm really glad you're here. Welcome to the Museum District campus of the Story. I also want to welcome our Timber Grove campus over in the Heights at 8200 Washington Avenue. And those of you joining us online, whatever platform you're on, you're part of the story today. So thank you for joining us. Uh, be sure to check in in the comment sections, by the way, just to let us know you're here and where you're tuning in from. So my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at the Story. And if you're, let's say, not officially a part of the story yet, you're new or newish to the story, and you're looking for a place to really connect and grow deep roots, maybe um, to know God more, ask your questions, man, we've got a place for you here. And summertime is actually a really great time to get connected because our usual groups are taking breaks and we're doing all these other crazy things like the Abraham Bible study, which is church-wide Wednesday nights, um, our men's Bible study, some of our other groups continue going through the summer. And also as Nick Boyer, professional rugby player of the Houston Sabercats, Nick Boyer, who I affectionately call Thor, I don't know if Thor's here today. He shared with us that a VBS is right around the corner. And, you know, we take a covenant as a church to surround our kids and their families with the love of Jesus and, and raise these kids to know the Lord. And so um, we're, a little, we're a little short on volunteers for VBS next week. If you've got any mornings open next week from 9 to noon, there's all kinds of support roles you can play. You don't have to, you know, sort of get in the thick of it with the kids. You can be a support role um, person. We just need help. So uh, to make that week as great as it can be and it should be, um, you can visit thestory.church slash VBS either to sign up to volunteer or to inquire or to check out uh, the Amazon wish lists. We also just need supplies and things like that uh, since we're a week away. Wow, a week away. So um, pray for our children's ministries and, and all of that. Uh, finally, before we get into today's message, I, uh, if I could lay hands on the air conditioning, I would, all right, and just pray for its healing, but it is, uh, if you're online today and not in person, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> it's a little, little warm, although not as warm as we thought it might be yesterday when we thought the whole system was out. I feel a little circulation, a little, we got these little fans, a little something happening, so maybe the Lord's working a healing miracle in our AC system today, and uh, the 11 o'clock service is the one that's going to be really... <laughs> you made good choices today, all right? So, um, so what we're going to do today is talk about everybody's favorite subject, Satan. Okay, so this is part two of a message series that we're doing throughout the month of June called Know Your Enemy. The reason we're doing this series is because it's clear to me we don't talk about our enemy enough. And it's not that he should take center stage in any way. We shouldn't give him too much attention but we better give him some, like we, we better at least acknowledge the fact that we have an enemy. And the Bible refers to this character, this, this figure, this cosmological foe uh, in a lot of different ways with different titles and things, but maybe um, most commonly the Bible calls him the enemy. There's also the deceiver, the liar, the accuser, all these other things, but the enemy is the Bible's favorite sort of brand for Satan. And I appreciate that because I can get my head around that. I used to play sports. I know what it's like to have an opponent. You know, when you've got an enemy, you know who you're up against. So you study the film tape and you strategize based on your enemy's strengths and weaknesses. And you don't just run your practices like you always would. If you know your enemy, you're preparing to go to battle in whatever sport you're, you're playing. And in the same way, we should, we, should look at, you know, we should look at our spiritual enemy in that way. Unfortunately, as Pastor Kale, our Timber Grove campus pastor, shared when he preached here last week, we think very little about the enemy. 
Even though it's pretty clear in Scripture, Jesus spoke more about this, by the way, than all the other people in the Bible combined. Jesus spoke more about this topic of our spiritual enemy called Satan than everyone else in the Bible combined. And if he felt that strongly about letting us know about this, we should probably be you know, thinking about the one who is against us and how he might be coming at us, what weaknesses he might see in us. He's watched the game film. He's studied up on you. He knows your strengths and weaknesses, just like you would any opponent that you've studied. He's done his scouting report. So how would he come after us? How can we then be prepared to, you know, play defense against his attacks and also go on offense, as the Bible says that we can and should? The point being, you cannot beat an enemy that you refuse to acknowledge, You can't win a battle over an an adversary that you never, ever think about or prepare for, okay? So he is is doing his homework. The question is, are we? And this is all sort of biblical stuff. So there's this great chapter in the weirdest maybe book in the the Bible, um, Revelation chapter 12, where in Revelation 12, um, the the Lucifer figure, this uh, in the form of a dragon, is said to have been present at the birth of Jesus, which is weird because we never sing Christmas songs about Satan at the cradle or the manger or whatever. It's like nobody has Satan on their nativity scenes except for us. We actually have a dragon that we put on our nativity scene here at the story because I preach about this so often. But Satan was present when Jesus was born, according to Revelation 12. Why? To celebrate the birth of Jesus? Of course not. He wanted to consume the child, to destroy the child and all the hope that child represented. But through John, God tells us that he failed. Satan failed in that attempt. And in the aftermath of his failure to consume the Christ child and destroy him, this is what happened next. So Revelation 12, 17 says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman. The dragon is Satan. The woman is is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who's that? Well, it's those who keep God's commands and who hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the closer you get to Jesus, the more serious you are about Jesus, the more prone you are to share the truth of Jesus with the world around you, the more this enemy has you in his sights. And I don't say this to scare you or to freak you out, although I'm sensing that might be (laughs) happening to some degree. That's not the reason for sharing. It's just because this is biblical truth that can help us live more fruitful lives in Christ, all right? So do you know your enemy? That's the question of this series. I remember the first time I went to Ecuador, many of you know I'm married to Pastor Gio, and she is from Ecuador, and when when we were 21, we took our first trip to Ecuador because she wanted me to meet her family because we had gotten married the year before. We got married at 20, and no, we, we weren't pregnant or anything. We just were crazy, and we got married at 20, and then she said, let's go to Ecuador. I wanted to meet my folks. They couldn't come to the wedding, so basically, I was going to meet her mom and dad after having stolen their daughter from them overseas. So it wasn't a pleasant sort of run up to that. I was nervous. But at the time, Gio and I were in college together. We were part of a campus ministry together, and we had started a band together, a Christian band. The band that we started together, anybody remember the name? Continental Breakfast (laughs) was the name of our band. 
because, as we said, we have something for everyone. So that's why we called it Continental Breakfast. And so my bright idea was like, hey, instead of just me and Gio going to meet my in-laws, you know, um, let's take the whole band. And so we decided to take the whole praise band with us to Ecuador. Gio's family is super connected with churches and ministries all across Ecuador. And so they set up like events and opportunities for us to play in front of huge crowds and sing our songs and share our testimonies and things. And it was like still to this day, I've preached in front of crazy crowds and stuff, but like that, that was probably some of the biggest crowds I've ever been in front of in Ecuador as part of Continental Breakfast. <laughs> so anyway, it was a great trip. Uh, one of the events they set up for us was deep in the Amazonian jungle. So the rainforest. If you don't know your Ecuadorian geography, um, <laughs> I wouldn't expect you to. Why would you? But a third of this country is covered in uh, Amazon rainforest, the jungle. And so they drove us deep on the most, the, the scariest road I've ever been on. I still can't believe we made it into this jungle to this radio station, like studio, where this big time Christian radio station interviewed us and let us play a couple songs. And after we played our songs, they said, we wanna, we wanna sit down for this interview. Which one of you wanna do this? And I volunteered and Gio volunteered because we were the only two in our band that spoke Spanish. And we thought that probably would make sense. We sat down and I'll be honest with you, I was not just surprised by the line of questioning, I was kind of dismissive arrogantly dismissive of the line of questioning. I thought they were going to ask us about our songs and our inspiration and, you know, our, our, our album, which was in production at the time, which to this day remains in production 20-something years <laughs> later. We'll get to it eventually. Uh, anyhow, that's not what they wanted to know about. They wanted to know about Satanism in America. Every single question. Tell us about the movement of satanic whatever across America. How many of your fellow students in college are Satan worshipers? And, you know, what are you seeing across uh, America in terms of satanic or demonic influence or possession or oppression or whatever? And I had nothing for these guys. You know, even though I was supposedly like this Christian guy from... But if you know my story, you know that by 21... I was already, I had already renounced my faith for all intents and purposes. I think at that point, I was holding on to some kind of deist idea of God, that God is just some distant watchmaker in the sky that set everything in motion and doesn't really care about us. But I definitely didn't believe in Satan. I barely believed in God, but absolutely didn't believe in Satan. I thought Satan was just a figment of the human imagination and just this sort of boogeyman to keep us in, in line. And that's what I had boiled Satan down to. And so every time they asked me a question about Satanism or satanic influence across America, I was just very dismissive. I was just kind of, in a way, I hope I didn't actually do this. Gio says I, I did. I was just rolling my eyes, you know, to the questions. It's like, how silly. Of course no one is worshiping the devil, this sort of satanic panic sort of silliness. Of course, Satan isn't on the move across America. Well, y'all, having known now what I know about our enemy. Uh, you know, I, I can say now I wish I had known then all the things I've learned over the years about how Satan works. But I think at that point, I had sort of made a caricature of Satan, and I thought, well, Satanism looks like Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off a squirrel on stage or something. And who does that? But Satan is much more cunning than that. Satan doesn't care about Ozzy Osbourne or Sam Smith or... Who's the guy that did the lap dance for the devil in the rap video? 
recently? I'm looking at Reynolds. He's the only one here, I think, who might know. Um, <laughs> little Nas X. Thank you, little Nas X. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Reynolds. My dentist. All right. So I'm just telling you, Satan doesn't care about any of that stuff. All that's just an act to sell albums and stuff. It's not, it doesn't really matter. Now, it might have an effect, a net effect to the negative, but the way Satan really works is in a much more cunning, behind-the-scenes sort of way. The way he really works is in the minds and hearts of people who don't really think about him much at all, all right? So um, I think had I, had I just listened to this radio guy in the Amazonian jungle of Ecuador in 2001, I think I would have been better off in the next 20 years after that when I kept being surprised by evil in the world. I kept being caught off guard by the depravity of humanity and our leaders and our society and my own heart. I kept getting shocked by how bad things were getting. You know, like if you had had told me in 2001 that America would be more racially divided in 2023 than we were in 2001, I would have said, you're crazy. No way. But here we are. I think it's pretty undeniable we're more racially divided. Unfortunately, it's just, and I chalk that up now because of what I know now, I chalk that up directly to the work of the enemy. You know, I wouldn't have been surprised by that had I known how the enemy works. I wouldn't have been surprised by the fact that our politicians who are elected to serve us (laughs) do anything but most of the time and that Republican and Democratic bureaucrats alike, really all they can agree on is one thing, and that's war pays. The military-industrial complex is alive and well long after Eisenhower called it out. You know, I, I wouldn't have been shocked by the, the incidents of violence and, you know, mass shootings that we've seen. I, I wouldn't be, have been shocked by the fact that sort of what we've got in 2023 and where we're headed as a society is like gender being so twisted to the point that women, womanhood can just be put on like a costume and has to be accepted as though that's what it means. And just based on how someone's you know, feeling about themselves, look, this, the movement of it all is what concerns me, not the people involved. we got to love everybody and be compassionate toward everybody. But when you look at Everything writ large, what we see is a society that is increasingly confused about the simple things, increasingly torn apart, and increasingly shocked and surprised by what we see. We shouldn't be if we know this enemy. If we know this enemy, we would never be surprised by the decline of the family. Of course, this enemy of ours hates families that work. Families that work are the seedbed of lives that work and function and give back and raise new generations of people who serve God and neighbor and love everybody. Like, of course, family is a seedbed of all things healthy in a society. And of course, it's falling apart under the influence of the devil. Y'all see what I mean? We wouldn't be surprised by this if we knew how he worked or by the fact that 92% of men and 60% of women in 2022 said that they uh, regularly consume pornography. That was 92% of men and 60% of women adults in America who said they regularly consume pornography, or the fact that during COVID, governments across this great land were shutting down churches completely at the risk of being jailed 
or find, or both, and letting strip clubs and bars stay open as if one was somehow worse or more dangerous than the other. And what did 98% of us do? We just shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, cool. Y'all, I'm not saying everyone involved in these decisions is evil or satanic. I'm just saying if you look at the movements happening in our culture writ large, you see his influence all over it. Of course he wants to shut down houses of worship, and of course he'll do it again if we choose to turn a blind eye. Of course the world as we know it is turning against the innocence of children and Our biggest social media conglomerates like Meta, which runs Instagram, was recently exposed for algorithms in their Instagram system that promote accounts that share child sex abuse content and pedophilia. And everybody just sort of yawned and took the next selfie. And that was, it's not conspiracy theory stuff. This is mainstream sort of journalism. Wall Street Journal and MSNBC and all this was picking it up, but nobody really pays attention and that's another example of the work of the enemy. But if you know him, you won't be surprised or caught off guard or taken aback whenever, you know, things in the world go sideways, all right? What we can say for sure is that our enemy has been busy. So today for part two of this series, what I'd like to do is explore a little bit more in detail about his end game. So part of knowing your enemy is knowing your enemy's objective. So what's he up to? What does he want to do with you? And what's his plan for your life? Um, So you know we often say God has a plan for your life, and part of the series is acknowledging that he's not the only one, that there is another cosmic being, a powerful being, not all powerful, but a powerful being nonetheless, who has a plan for your life. And it is pretty clear what that plan is. First of all, let's talk about God's plan for your life. Biblically, that's also clear. Through the prophet Jeremiah, 600 years before the life of Jesus, God said through Jeremiah, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that's sort of a trifecta of God's plan generally for every human life. He wants to to prosper and not harm you. He wants to give you hope and he wants to give you a future. But in light of that, we have to also acknowledge what the other side of that coin is. What would Satan's plan for our life be today? Well, Jesus pretty much told us in no uncertain terms what his plan is for your life. John 10, 10. And this is something I believe Kale shared this last week as well. The thief, that's the enemy, comes only, this is very clear, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he's up to. And the question then is like to steal what, to kill what, to destroy what, and we'll talk more about that momentarily, but he just wants destruction. He wants chaos. He doesn't, this is one of the biggest misnomers, he doesn't want to be worshipped. He's not in competition with God for your worship. It's like, it's not like how many people are in church versus how many people are at the satanic temple on Sunday morning. It's like, that's not the game. How many of you have ever seen the greatest movie ever made, The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan? How many of you have seen that? All right. Best movie of all time. Okay? There's not even any question. Okay? So, uh, thank you. My first amen this morning. Appreciate that. In that, one of the best things about that movie is the villain, Heath Ledger, who tragically, I think he took his own life after playing that role of the Joker. And Michael Caine's character in this, uh, in this film is speaking to, you know, the Batman, Christian Bale. And, uh, and what, he, what he said about this enemy was haunting. He, 
He, he, was making, he was analogizing the joker with this thief that he knew once. He said there was once this thief that was a, the biggest jewel thief in the world, and I was sent to take care of him. But what I realized is that he wasn't even keeping the jewels that he was stealing because he didn't care about getting rich. He didn't care about, you know, becoming more uh, powerful or wealthy than anyone else in the world. All he wanted was to watch the world burn. Some men, Michael Caine said, just want to watch the world burn. That perfectly describes Satan and his plan for your life and mine. It's who he's always been. It's who he is today. It's who he's always been. He's nothing if not consistent. And from Genesis to Revelation, he is the same. So I read that passage in Revelation. I encourage you to read the rest of Revelation 12. It will blow your ever-loving mind to see what he was up to at the birth of Jesus and sort of the cosmic side of Christmas. But let's go now to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, and sort of excavate this story that in Genesis 3 introduces us to the person known as Satan or the deceiver as we explore the enemy's endgame. What we're going to see in Genesis 3 is that his endgame first is to steal your innocence before God, to steal your innocence before God, and then we're going to talk about how he comes to kill your intimacy with God and to destroy your eternity with God. But first, let's look at this passage and see how he steals our innocence before, or he seeks to steal our innocence before God. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent, that's the devil, obviously, right? We want to make sure everybody's on the same page. The serpent was more crafty or slimy or cunning, slippery. Use your favorite word. More crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Okay, so in no uncertain terms, this, this reptilian figure is meant to play the role of Satan. This is Satan, right? I've heard it said that maybe he was some other mythological figure. This is absolutely Satan speaking through this snake that he was embodying, Hey, I know it's weird. Hang with me, okay? I know the whole talking snake thing is like a trope now. It's like, well, that should probably be the big story here, right? Is that the snake talked to a lady and she was cool with it. But that's, there's way more going on in the story. And this is not just meant to report history, although I think this event or something just like it took place. I think the real point of the story is to teach theology and the truth of what's going on behind the surface of, or beneath the surface of life, all right? So what's Lucifer's deal? His whole deal is rebellion. Why? Because his root sin was pride. Lucifer was an angel in the heavenly host and was such a beautiful and perfect in beauty is how the Bible describes him. Such a powerful angel that at a certain point he started to get sick of submitting himself to the Lord God. Elohim is the word, the Lord God, as it's translated throughout most of early Genesis, the Lord God. And that, that phrase for God is so perfect because the Lord God is twofold. It is, on the one hand, relational. Lord is, is, is indicative of a relationship. If you have a Lord, you are under that person. You are under that one. And so we have a Lord God. God is a religious word. If you take either one of those two away, 
You have something other than the God of the Bible, something less than. You either have this sort of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of I don't need to change kind of relationship, you know, that he's your co-pilot, or you have this all religion, rigid, top-down, static, angry man in the sky God. If you just call him Lord, he's one thing. If you just call him God, he's the other. If he's Lord God, then he's where he should be. And what if, if you were paying attention to the reading, you, you might have caught it, but it really, you have to read the whole thing in context. This is the first time in this whole narrative of Scripture from Genesis 2 through Genesis 3 that the Lord God is referred to as just God. And who does it? Satan. Why would he do it? This is what he does. He takes true words and lies with them to deceive and confuse us or to plant little seeds of doubt to the extent that if you keep reading, so first it says, did God really say? That's the devil talking. And God did really say those words, but in chapter two, when he said it, the Lord God said it. So there's relationship and religion. There's just, it's perfect in chapter two. He comes to try and confuse and muddy the waters here. Did God really say? And then after hearing that and having, having this interaction with the enemy, opening this door to the enemy, the woman then refers for the first time in scripture, refers to God, not as the Lord God, but just God. Because in the, the line further down, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, so how easily those gears shift, right? Under the influence of this demonic capacity for lying with true words. This is what he does all the time. He lies with true words, words like God, words like truth, words like love. You've heard all the lies that are told with true words. That's what makes them so deceptive. All right, he's an excellent liar, and, and he lies to steal our innocence before God. That just means in the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect, childlike, playful even, intimacy and innocence before God. And so how do you take that away? Will you inject doubt and shame, toxic kinds of shame that drive a wedge between us and God? And that's exactly what Satan did in this story by telling, you know, Eve, in this case, we're going to find out in a second that Adam was there too, being a passive, what do y'all kids call him, beta male, something like that, I don't know. <laughs> he's just not doing anything, he's just letting it all happen, not speaking up, not defending his wife, whatever, it's just, he's there too. But anyway, the point is, this deceptive snake of an enemy of ours is out to disrupt our connection with God by sullying our innocence and making sinners of us where we were perfect and righteous before God, okay? So he exploits our naivete in that way. Second, what does he do? The enemy's end game is to kill our intimacy with God. This is sort of a corollary from the first. But let's read the next verse of this passage from Genesis 3. You will not certainly die, the enemy said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In other words, if you eat this fruit, you will not certainly die. What he's insinuating here is that if you eat it, you will keep living. You won't drop dead. That, again, true words, but told deceptively. Because the Lord God's point when he said you will die wasn't that you'll die instantly right away. It was that this will introduce sin, which will introduce decay to the flesh, and eventually we would die. That's what the Lord God meant. And here we have Satan lying again 
with true words. Then uh, toward the end of this, he says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if you struggle with this passage, and I know a lot of people have, and how couldn't you? Like, of course you're going to struggle with this passage. But if this has been a hang-up for you, it's probably because you have read or received this passage like the serpent intended Eve to in this story. You've sort of missed the bigger point of it. Like you've just, you've seen the serpent say, well, God doesn't want humans to be as good as him. So God is just sort of petty, the petty old man in the sky. He doesn't want us to know all that he knows. He's jealous and small and whatever, and a typical man up there just doesn't want us to, he wants to keep us in our place, doesn't want us to enjoy life. Like that's the narrative of people who reject this, uh, the, the, the word of God based on Genesis 3. That's not at all what is happening here. It's just a result of the enemy twisting truth to make it into a lie. What's the truth of what was happening in the garden? Total, total innocence, total intimacy with God in the garden. They had countless trees they could eat from. Were those trees something that they planted? Is this something they worked for? Was this something they did to deserve it? No, God just gave them innumerable trees with all kinds of fruit and good stuff to, to eat right? Name your favorite fruit. Shout it out. I forgot I'm in Texas. Barbecue doesn't grow on trees, so work with me. All right. Cherries. It's a cherry tree in the garden. What else? Apples. There was an apple tree in the garden. All right. I can keep going, but y'all aren't fruit people apparently. So <laughs> we'll move on. All of it was there for the taking freely. God created the people for freedom. And he said, yes, a million times before he said no once. And the one no was just to protect all the other yeses. And then the devil comes along and says, remember that one time he said no? Why do you think he did that? What do you think he's up to? What's he, what's he keeping from you? What's he holding back from you? You know? And that whole good and evil thing, it's just, it's, it's pretty cool to know it all. You know? He's says he's trying to protect you from all that evil, but really he just doesn't want you to be powerful like him. And look, Satan the serpent was quoting the Lord, sort of quoting him preemptively. A few verses later, the Lord God says this very thing to the heavenly host or the heavenly council of angels around him. He said, you know, he said now that he's going to know good from evil and, and, and knowing good from evil. All that stuff is actually words the Lord God said, but the enemy presented those words verbatim in a deceptive way. Watch out. Pretty words. Falsely told. So God isn't holding out on you. He's not keeping anything from you. In fact, he's giving you the best, greatest, most lasting gift you can be given, which is freedom. He's given you the freedom to choose God or the enemy, his plan or the enemy's plans. All right, third and finally, what is the enemy's end game? Well, he is out to destroy our eternity with God. Let's finish this passage and then I'll bring us home here. It says, uh, when the woman saw, this is Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, 
She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their nudity before that was not a problem, apparently, because they were innocent. They were, they were sinless and free. But now they know good and evil. That's, that's what's happened. And so they're covering their tracks, literally covering themselves up. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And the man answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. All of that is a lie. It seems true. That's not why he hid. If you really think about it, any parents of toddlers in the room? It's like some lies sound good but they don't make any sense. And this doesn't make any sense. He didn't hide because he was naked. He wasn't naked anymore. He'd already covered himself up, right? So this was clearly an example of how um, one lie easily accepted can lead to another. And when you start listening to a liar, you become one. Maybe even unbeknownst to you in some cases. And so that's, that's, I think that's what Jesus meant, by the way, when he said Satan is a liar and the father of lies is because by listening to him, you sort of become under him, a child of his. You inherit that capacity for misinformation, okay? Then the Lord God said, "Uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman. (laughs) Uh, This is so good. The man said, the woman that you put here. So not only does he blame Eve, he blames God for giving him Eve. It's like the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me, and I ate it. I was hungry. You might say I was hangry. And what else was I going to do? And I trusted this woman that you gave me. So immediately, this passing the buck, passing the blame, another, this is another symptom of falling prey to the tricks of our enemy. You become like him. This is what he does. And then the, and then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. So Adam said, the woman made me do it. And the woman said, the devil made me do it. That's right. Okay, so that's where that song comes from. All right, so these excuses, these self-justifications, typical symptoms of those who fall under uh, the influence of Satan. What's the end game here for Satan? Is to get us out of the garden. He wants nothing more than to get us out of the garden, the garden representing our place of intimacy and eternity with God. He doesn't want you in the garden, and it's not because he hates you. It's not about you. It's about the one you remind him of the one in whose image you're created, the one who loves you more than anything. It's about breaking his heart, not yours. It has very little to do with you. You're a pawn in his game and nothing more. But the whole point was to get Adam and Eve banished from the garden and under sin's curse, and he, you know, he achieved that end game. And the question, I guess, for all of us is what hope do we have against an adversary like this one? one so cunning as to use true words to tell lies again and again and again. How can we ever overcome such an enemy? Well, one of my favorite verses, and I'm not, I don't have it on the screen, but, but if you want to write this down or type it in your phone, this can be your sort of go-to verse this week, is Colossians 2, verse 15, where, where Paul wrote that God disarmed the powers and the authorities. Those are spiritual powers and authorities. God has already disarmed Satan and his demons 
Insofar as the kingdom of God is concerned, this enemy of ours is powerless and feckless. And as long as you're with him, he, he can have nothing on you because, it says, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. So by clinging to Christ and clinging to the cross, you really have nothing to fear against an enemy, even an enemy as cunning as this. When I was in seventh grade, I played um, basketball in a little uh, country school, and, and uh, it was back when uh, we wore the shortest shorts imaginable. I've noticed those shorts are coming back now. The boys are wearing these short shorts again. Um, full circle, full circle moment for Gen X guy like me. But anyway, uh, we had a terrible team in our seventh grade year. Uh, it was basically seventh graders. There were seven of us, and we, I, we were all late bloomers. None of us had even started puberty yet, and we were getting absolutely demolished by the teams we were playing. We were just seven mid-height, slow I'll say it, white guys, all right? So just white guys like me that were just getting demolished every game. Well, then one day at practice, our practices were always so depressing, but one day everything changed. A young man named Danielle Wise. I don't know who names their son Danielle, but it didn't matter. This dude could play, all right? So Danielle walked in, and during our warm-up layups, Danielle started dunking the ball in seventh grade, and he had a full goatee and was, uh, I, I found out later, <laughs> Danielle had been held back a couple years, all right? So <laughs> I just, it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me, and it didn't matter to coach, because <laughs> Danielle turned our whole season around. Uh, the only time coach got mad from that point on was when, when any of us shot the ball except Danielle. Just pass it to Danielle. Let him win it. One time we scored 36 points in a game. Danielle scored 34 of them. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. But I, I've never forgotten that sort of uh, feeling of, of really not even having the game in your own hands anymore. The sort of the fun that you can have whenever the outcome of the game is secure because somebody like Danielle Wise walks in and takes over. The feeling you can have as a believer is like encompasses that by infinity. It's like... I don't know how else to say it, but what if you looked at Jesus like our seventh grade basketball team looked at Mr. Daniel Wise, the grown man in the room amidst a bunch of good-for-nothing, know-nothing, weak and slow basketball players. Listen, what I'm saying is that the fight for your life and the fight for your soul, the fight for your eternity, it's not even your fight. And that's the best news. The bad news is this enemy's formidable, sure. He's cunning, sure. But, but Christ and the cross are far greater. You have nothing to fear in the face of such an enemy as long as you abide in Christ, as long as you know who you're with. And really, the only way to lose this battle for yourself or your family, people you're looking out for and leading, is by distancing yourself from Christ and relying on yourself or anyone or anything else more than him. And so that's my challenge to you today. Regardless of how the enemy comes after you and his tactics and the way he tries to break you down, all you have to do is cling all the more to Christ. Depend on him. Abide in him. Hold on to the cross and to what it means for you. And you will know the freedom God intended for you and for all of his children. Let's pray. Lord, um, 
We thank you for uh, reminding us throughout your word that we have an enemy who is out to get us and who knows us well and um, comes at us with all kinds of coordinated attacks to deceive us. And Lord, at the same time, we know that you don't give us those instructions to scare us or to intimidate us or to cause us to cower in fear. You give us these instructions to prepare us for victory, to receive the victory that you've already achieved for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we receive that victory today, not by our own doing, but by simply clinging to you and your promises. We know your promises endure. Whereas the enemy's promises, they come and they go by the wayside, but your, your promises for us endure, the promises to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. Lord, I pray that every person in this room and at Timber Grove and online today would receive those promises in their fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.